Hey, Jenna, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I'm really excited to have you on today to learn more about you and also hear more about your story with OCD and what you do. But if you want to start by introducing yourself and just giving the audience a a little bit more insight into who you are. Sure. So my name is Jenna. I'm a licensed professional counselor. I'm actually based in Wisconsin, um, but I'm originally from Pittsburgh, went to grad school in uh, Baltimore. So I've kind of been all over, but um, I treat people who have OCD and anxiety. I've always known from a super early age that this is what I wanted to do. Um, I've always been an anxious kid. That's a really big part of my story, but I also, regardless of how that anxiety showed up, like, oh my gosh, what if the teacher calls on me or just being too anxious to go to school in general. Um, I always was very competitive with it. Like I always knew, okay, that makes me anxious. That means I have to do it. Um, so I think I knew very intuitively from an early age that, you know, giving into anxiety and letting it make decisions for me wasn't how I wanted to live my life and that that just made things worse. So when I learned about exposure and response prevention and how that's actually a legitimate treatment for OCD and anxiety, I just fell in love with it. So since 2008, I've been trying to learn as much as I possibly could. And yeah, I've been doing it, oh my gosh, for a very long time, since 2008. So I love it. And uh, I'm a therapist. I don't see too many clients anymore because I've been focusing more so on my podcast. Um, It's called All the Hard Things and also focusing on, um, I really like to teach people. That's really my joy. That's really my passion. And and so I really like to teach people in like the one-to-many capacity. Um, So whether that's therapists, other professionals, or people who have OCD, I've really been specializing a little bit more in in like digital products and masterclasses. And I'm coming out with a course in September that's going to be really thorough and really helpful. So super excited about all of those things. Yeah, that is so cool. And I love that like you've turned like a struggle that you have had into like your career and helping other people that are struggling with like similar things. But I'd love to hear more about just like how you first discovered you had like anxiety, OCD, and how you like were officially diagnosed with it. So like I said, I always knew that I was anxious. I don't know that I ever thought that, especially as a kid, like that anything was wrong with me. I kind of was just in my own world and thought and knew that that was how I, how my brain worked. Um, As I got older, I mean, I definitely saw some kind of anxious, perfectionistic tendencies in school throughout college and so on and so forth. Um, But it really didn't come up very much for me. Um until I had my son back in 2018. So he's about five and a half years old now, but back in 2018, I remember even when I had, when I was pregnant, I remember telling other people and, you know, learning about postpartum OCD and stuff and being like, oh, that would never happen to me. Like, I know better. I would never think to ask my husband to do these things for me. I would never give into a ritual like that. I know more than I, you know, than other people who give into that stuff. And I always say like, I wasn't even naive. I was just ignorant. Like I was ignorant. I thought that I knew everything that there was to know. Um, And so of course I have my son um, and I was okay for maybe the first week. I had what I thought was maybe a traumatic delivery and it just wasn't going the way that we, that I thought it was going to go. And so a couple weeks into it, I remember I was sitting on my bed. I was putting socks on him getting him dressed. And I had this intrusive thought come in all of a sudden about, oh my gosh, what if you snap his ankles? And 
I knew in that moment that it was an intrusive thought. I knew that that was like a thought that came in out of nowhere and that that was not me. It was very ego dystonic. But then I started to have this kind of like secondary misinterpretation of it, right? That's almost like, oh my gosh, why did you have that thought? Does it mean that you actually want to do that? Would you ever do that? Um, you know, and it felt very anxiety provoking for me. I started to get really invested. And I remember just shooting my hands up and saying, heck no, like, absolutely not. I don't want anything to do with that thought. Um, and I didn't care. Like, I didn't care if that was going to make the anxiety worse. I didn't care if that was going to make something else worse in the long run. I just knew that it felt like in that moment that the stakes were too high and that I couldn't keep doing that. I like, I was not going to go anywhere near that thought anymore. Um, and so as we know, OCD doesn't just stop there, right? Like as you reinforce it, it grows and it gets worse and it gets worse. And so it started to become me having a hard time changing his clothes at all. I was having a hard time putting pants on him, his diaper. Uh, I was having a hard time even just being alone with him. I remember it became very difficult for even when my husband would go to the bathroom for like a minute or two, right? Like my, my heart would drop and, oh my gosh, what if I did something? What if I have those thoughts again? I can't tolerate that. That's so anxiety provoking. And so it just became very, very difficult. Um, and it spurred into other things. I've struggled with sexual intrusive thoughts about him. I've struggled with generally this fear that I'm actually sleeping. Like I'm actually hallucinating my whole entire experience. Like what if I believe that I put him in the car seat, but I didn't actually put him in the car seat. Um, like what if I, I dreamt that, right? And so what if I, I'm driving and I dreamt putting him in the car seat, but he's actually in the park and he's alone, right? And so I would get out of the car and I would have to, you know, check to make sure that he was there. I'd have to take him out of the car seat to make sure that I could physically feel his weight. Um, and I remember pinching myself. I was pinching myself to make sure that I wasn't sleeping so badly that I had bruises and cuts on my arms. It was bad. Um, and it got so bad, it just kept getting worse and worse until eventually I was like, I can't be on the side of the road one more time picking my son out of his car seat while there are semi-trucks whizzing by. Like, I don't want to keep doing, I can't keep doing that. I don't know what's next and I don't want to wait for what's next after that. And so I eventually got in to see my own therapist, did my own exposure and response prevention, and it's been incredibly life-changing. Like, I think I'm a better therapist now, um, better educator, better everything, having gone through what I've gone through. Um, and that was about three years ago now. Of course, I always do ERP. It's a lifestyle, right? Like I'm constantly making sure that I am resisting my rituals and constantly making sure that I'm, you know, not giving into any areas, uh, not giving any, you know, OCD, any room to breathe. But um, yeah, like I definitely see things from the other side now, having been through that myself. Uh, and I think OCD is one of those things that you don't really truly get it unless you've had it. Um, there are wonderful therapists out there that I know off the top of my head who are wonderful therapists. They're great clinicians, um, but they don't have OCD. And there's just, there's just, you're going to be missing something. There's something that you're missing. You're never going to know what it's like until you have it. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much for sharing all that. And I completely agree. You don't understand it unless you have it truly, because it's very illogical and it doesn't make sense. And I can agree with you where the more you give into something and to these tendencies, like the more powerful the OCD will like have on your life. And I'm just curious how, like, because it sounds like you struggle with some like anxious, you are an anxious child, but which like is, 
OCD something like you're born with or can it be triggered? Like it sounds like you didn't have OCD, like it wasn't an issue in your life until you gave birth to your son. So is that common among like other people? So OCD, like a lot of other mental health conditions, it follows what we call a loaded gun theory. So you are born with a genetic predisposition or kind of vulnerability to it. Um, and research supports that, that it runs in families. They've done twin studies to show that like even in different environments and different upbringings, there is a genetic component. So, um, and it might not, not always be like OCD to OCD, right? Like maybe it's some other kind of related condition, right? Like social anxiety to OCD or, or what are kind of another related comorbid condition. Um, but yes, so it does end up being this genetic predisposition or vulnerability. Now that doesn't mean that if it is in your family that you are doomed to get it or that if you have it, you are doomed to give it to your children, right? Because environment plays such a huge role. So there's things like modeling, right? Like what you have seen being modeled and displayed by other people in your family, your friends, your family members, so on and so forth. Um, just the environmental conditions, right? Like our my kid is going to have grown up with, uh, you know, COVID and having it be very normal that people walk around in masks and, you know, it's different from when I grew up, right? So those things all play a role. Um, and I mean, even things like school shootings, right? Like my son is going to grow up where that is just as normal, like shooting drills are just as normal as tornado drills. That's going to definitely shape his upbringing. Maybe he's going to be more anxious about it. Maybe he's going to be less anxious about it. I don't know, right? Um, so all of those things play a role. But I always encourage people to think of OCD or a lot of other mental health conditions as the loaded gun, but then environment can come in and something can happen or a series of things can happen and it can really pull that trigger. Um, so it really does depend um, on a lot of different things for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think back to like my experience of first kind of having my first kind of tendency um, was like in seventh grade. I feel like I'd also been kind of an anxious child, but I remember like questioning in like math class whether I fit in or not, or just something like that. It was like a weird time in my life. And I remember like getting up to go sharpen my pencil. And if I sharpen my pencil, like I would fit in and I'd be cool and whatever. So it like, that's kind of what triggered it. And like, I realized that was a way to cope with the anxious thoughts I was having, which it then became so much bigger and I gave it so much power, which it then turned into like all different things. So I just ask, like, I'm sure you will say yes, but like, can OCD manifest in many ways? And like, yeah, because for me, like I, it started very small things. It was controlling, you know, in my head, like whether I fit in, but then eventually I think contributed to why I struggle with like multiple eating disorders in the future. Cause like that was a way I could control outcome. Absolutely. So I think in the past we tended to think that OCD was just about contamination or OCD was this, this, and this, and it had to fit into these categories. And as we have learned more about it and we talk more about mental health as a society and more people come out, right? It's We're starting to now talk about things like relationship OCD and sexual orientation OCD and gender identity um, OCD. And it's like, Okay, like uh, we got to focus more on the process, not the content. And that's what we do in treatment anyway, right? We're not in treatment. We're not focusing on the contamination being the problem. We're not focusing on the relationship being the problem. We're focusing on the process, which is how they're misinterpreting these thoughts as being significant and compulsing. And so I think as we've evolved as a field, we have realized, hey, that's kind of hypocritical. We focus on the process, not the content in our treatment. So in our diagnostic interpretation of OCD, we also shouldn't be focusing on the content, right? So 
Uh, yeah. When viewed from that lens, OCD can latch onto anything. OCD is limited only by one's imagination. So what's the most important is when we look at the diagnostic criteria for OCD, it's that someone would have obsessions. So obsessions are intrusive thoughts, ideas, images, impulses, feelings. Um, so I always call them just, these are intrusive experiences. These are things that come in out of nowhere, uh, that aren't consistent with your, your values, that they're not consistent with your sense of self or your idea of who you are as a person. Um, and they are just that they are intrusive. They came in out of nowhere. You did not conjure them up. They popped up. And then we also have compulsions, which are just these either behavioral or mental behavioral acts that someone does to try to feel better or negate the anxiety that they feel from that obsession. So it could be things like hand washing, but it could also be things like reassurance seeking or avoidance or um, symptom monitoring or anything like that, right? Anything could be a compulsion. But then we're also, with any mental health condition, we're looking for things like distress and impairment. So distress is well, how much distress is, are these symptoms causing you in your everyday life? Is this a problem for you or is it not a problem for you? And then we look at impairment. So in what areas of your life are these symptoms negatively impacting your life? Are you unable to get to work on time? Are you unable to fulfill your, you know, daily expectations as far as, you know, brushing your teeth, showering, that kind of stuff. Um, and according to the DSM, they really, uh, emphasize like, one plus hours a day in order to meet criteria for OCD. But I think that's kind of silly, right? Like we, don't always, we can't always quantify like how much time does it take to avoid something? Probably doesn't take a whole lot of time, but if I'm avoiding something really big and really significant for me that has a lot of consequences, that seems more important to consider. So yes, OCD can come out in any way. Um, the most important thing to think about is more broad and more big, you know, big concept here is obsessions, compulsions, distress, and impairment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember like it just, mine started so small and just didn't cause me that much stress. And it just like quickly turned into like, it was debilitating. Like I couldn't function. Like I just like, I'd be late to school because I would want to go a certain way out of the driveway, which would cause me to be super late for school. And it just got to the point where it was like, making me so stressed out and it's like, it takes me away from the present, but I'd love to talk with you just a little bit more about treatment. And if someone like comes to you looking to work on their OCD, what would you suggest? So absolutely the person with OCD, and I would argue with anxiety too, uh, that could be a different conversation. I really don't see there being a big functional and process wise difference between OCD and what we know is just anxiety. But, um, if someone is struggling with OCD or anxiety, I would 100% encourage them to find somebody or do something to implement what is called exposure and response prevention. So um, exposure and response prevention, it's known as ERP. It has been around for a very, very long time. There's more research to kind of back it up than any other psychological intervention. Um, and so it's actually called the gold standard. Now, what does that mean? It just means it is the frontline treatment um, there are other evidence-based treatments for OCD and anxiety, like acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, but when it comes to ERP, ERP is kind of the front line. If that was my son or one of my family members or friends, absolutely, you need to be in ERP. So ERP is, we call it a two-part solution to a two-part problem. So the two-part problem, again, is obsessions and compulsions. 
the two-part solution of ERP is the exposure and then the response prevention. So the exposure piece comes in where you would work with a therapist or on your own as best you can um, to gradually and strategically put yourself in um, anxiety-provoking situations to kind of push yourself outside of your comfort zone. Now, that could be a lot of different things and it could be different things for different people. Um, but you want to find things that are challenging and manageable. Um, they should not be things that are your worst fear. Uh, they should also not be things that you're doing on an everyday basis anyway, right? It should be challenging, but manageable. Um, and then the idea is that you do those things repetitively. You keep doing those things. Um, you know, eventually they become less anxiety provoking. You learn that you can tolerate it. All good stuff. But the most important piece is actually the second solution of ERP, which is the RP piece. So response prevention, otherwise known as ritual prevention. So response or ritual prevention just means that while you're doing these exposures, actually before, during, and after these exposures, you also need to be resisting your compulsions. So you can't just be doing these exposures and continuing to do the rituals that you used to do um, because nothing is changing, right? Like you're just doing this anxiety provoking thing and you're doing the rituals that you have normally been doing anyway, nothing changes. So how OCD works is we have to start resisting the rituals. The rituals work in such a way that it's very temporarily relieving. It Oh, that feels good. Okay. I just washed my hands. I don't feel dirty anymore. That's good. I can move on with my day. But unfortunately doing that ritual just reinforces the credibility of that obsession in the first place. So, you know, with my son, when I would avoid putting socks on him, whew, I had that, you know, that whoosh of relief and that felt good. Okay. Good thing. I didn't, uh, you know, put socks on him because otherwise something bad would have happened. When in reality, maybe something bad would have happened, but maybe not, right? Like I'm maybe that fear that I had was never going to happen in the first place. But by doing the ritual, you're only ever giving yourself the chance to see the worst case scenario. You're not actually seeing that that might not have happened. So it's really important to target the rituals. Um, so with ritual prevention, that's exactly what we're doing. We are working on identifying what those rituals are for somebody, whether that's avoidance or reassurance seeking, hand washing. And again, they're going to be different and unique to everybody. Uh, but you really want to work on strategically coming up with a plan to resist doing those rituals, not do it. Um, so when you're doing this exposure, like let's say that I had an exposure and I did, um, I had an exposure to go and and put socks on my son. Uh, when I was ready for it, of course, I had to go and put socks on my son and it was anxiety provoking. Of course, your brain is screaming at you like, what the heck, Jenna? Like you've been telling me this whole time that this is anxiety or that this is dangerous and that we shouldn't be doing this. And now all of a sudden you're doing it. I'm not on board yet because as your brain, it's my job to keep you safe and alive. And so I'm going to send norepinephrine and adrenaline and cortisol and freak you out. Of course, it's anxiety provoking and you got to keep doing it. And, you know, it wouldn't have been effective for me mid sock change to tell my husband, okay, I can't do this anymore. Like that's not an exposure. The exposure is doing it and doing it without the ritual. So by doing that and you continue to do it and you work through it and you continue to mess with OCD's pattern, you relinquish that reinforcing nature that is the compulsions. Um, and eventually you get less anxious. Eventually you have fewer urges to have to do these compulsions. There's also, you know, secondary benefits of, you know, better mood, better quality of life, all of those things. So uh, it's a really great treatment. I think people 
hear about it and they get very scared and they think kind of the worst case scenario, like, oh my gosh, I could never do that. Of course you could do it, right? It's very strategic and it's very collaborative, right? Like we, a good ERP therapist will tell you, like, I don't want you to do anything that you don't want to do unless I've convinced you of why you need to do it. It's also incredibly empowering. Um, we don't teach coping skills. I don't teach my clients to do breathing exercises or to do kind of other things like box breathing or I like we don't do any of that. We we teach people to truly let their bodies do what their bodies are supposed to do, which is they calm down naturally. And so we don't realize that sometimes as much as we have a fight or flight system, we also have a rest and digest system. So we have a sympathetic nervous system, which, you know, catapults us into that, oh my gosh, there's a bear. I'm freaking out. I'm going to die. Uh, but we also have a parasympathetic nervous system whose job is to work on saving resources and calm us down. And so when we do a ritual or when we avoid or when we do something, when we're scared, you know, breathing or ice pack or, or these other coping skills, we're kind of telling our parasympathetic nervous system, nah, you don't need to work today. I got this. It's like, they're ready to work. Like they're ready to work and and they are just fine doing the work and you just have to be patient enough to let them do their job. And, and you'll realize that you're, you have everything that you need in order to be able to tolerate anxiety already. Like you don't need to do anything to cope with that. Um, so I think sometimes overuse of those coping skills can actually send the inadvertent message that you need something to cope with this and it is dangerous. Um, otherwise, why would you be coping with it? Um, so yeah, it's really empowering. It's really amazing. It is incredible. It's life-changing. And I mean, it is more effective for OCD and anxiety than any other treatment than for any other treatment for any other disorder. So um, it's incredible. I really, really love it. Yeah. Well, I can, I love that you shared all that. Yeah. And it, I think it exists itself on a spectrum. So I think it can be done on one end of the spectrum. It can be done very rigidly, kind of like in a man, very manualized fashion, right? Like you do it with a therapist, you are very hardcore about it. You have this like very laid out strategy and blah, blah, blah. But then I also think, I think the, the really the crux of OC, uh, of ERP, it comes down to three things. It comes down to pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone, reducing your rituals and, and reducing avoidance. And so as long as you're doing those things, you're probably on the right track. I agree. And so with that said, do you think it's necessary to, to be working with a therapist while kind of figuring out how to manage it? So people ask me this all the time. And I people always ask me for recommendations. Like, hey, Jenna, do you have any recommendations for an OCD therapist in Nebraska? And I'm like, I, no, I don't. I don't. Um, I would love I, I mean, I definitely have a couple, like I have a couple of people who I think like, oh yeah, if my son ever needed somebody, yeah, I would send them to this person or I would send them to this person. But a lot of those people are either all taken, they, and that's for a reason, right? Like they're highly specialized and so they're highly sought out after. Um, they're outside of the person's price range and, or they're not in their state. So a lot of times people don't realize it's not our, like I can only see people in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. Those are the only three states that I'm licensed in. So I can't see someone in California. So someone in California can only be seen by therapists who are licensed in California. So, I mean, 
you start to put so many filters on things and it's like, I need someone who understands OCD. I need someone who does and understands exposure and response prevention. And I need someone in my state who has availability and who fits my price range. It's like, that's like a needle in a haystack for some people, right? So I, yes, if you can find a therapist who understands OCD, who says that they do, and they actually really, really do exposure and response prevention, and they truly, truly get it, and they have experience, then yes, go for it. Absolutely. But keep in mind, just because someone says that they treat OCD and that they do ERP, it doesn't mean that they actually are good at it, right? Um, You can kind of put whatever on psychology today, and it's not necessarily vetted uh, that well. So um, I believe in getting the right information and the right resources and the high quality information and resources, even if that means from like a podcast or, you know, self-help books or um, anything like that. Um, So I really believe in kind of like the self-help stuff if it's the right information. Now, with that said, if you have a therapist, if you can have a therapist, that's amazing. I think, I think that would be ideal. I would love for every single person to have a really highly specialized OCD therapist who understands ERP but I don't think that that's as available as what we need. So I really encourage people instead to find the right information and high quality information. And if they need to do some self-help stuff, that's better than nothing. Um, Otherwise, I encourage people to go to the International OCD Foundation. The International OCD Foundation has a great directory. Uh, That's iocdf.org. So you can go there and you can look through therapists and and see kind of who fits you, but definitely make sure if you want to go the therapy route, definitely make sure that the person that you're seeing, ask them about their years of experience, ask them about how long they've been doing ERP, ask them kind of what their personal approach to it is and all of that stuff, because it takes a lot to, to kind of like set yourself up for therapy, right? Like just the emotional investment, kind of overcoming that fear. It's a lot of money as well. Like even if it is covered by insurance for some people, it's a lot. And so you deserve to to feel like you're getting the best experience possible. I completely agree with everything you said, just because my personal experience, I it was beginning to the point in like around seventh grade when it was becoming affecting my life so much that it was like impacting the way I was living my life. And I just, it was hard for me to enjoy the present moment. So I met with someone and she gave me some strategies, it being the ERP, So I always like had that in my toolbox, but as I got older, like I kind of did it on my own. And I think that just knowing like what's a, like a successful strategy and just proving to myself that like, if I just keep doing it, it will be beneficial. Like that's kind of how I've been able to manage it and talk myself out of it. But I don't know. I agree how it can be really incredibly hard to find someone who specializes in OCD and then also is licensed in your state. So I really agree with that. And also just finding, like you said, just like the resources that are like factual, like for me, like I found your podcast and honestly listening to your podcast, knowing I'm not alone to know that there's other people like feeling the same exact way is really reassuring and like hearing their strategies and how they cope with it is super helpful. So I think just like sometimes like the self, like you can go the self out journey and that will allow you to still manage it as well. For sure. And, um, I think part of what is so maddening about OCD is that it does feel so isolating. Like I remember constantly feeling what's wrong with me. Like what is wrong with me? Um, Because you just don't, there was never anything that felt better than knowing that someone else out there was having the same experience as I was not because I wanted them obviously to have the same experience as I was. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but 
there was something very just like assuring about the fact that I'm not losing my mind, that there's not something inherently wrong with me, that this has a name and this has like a trajectory and that this is something that it's not just me. Like that is a very isolating feeling that can drive you crazy. Absolutely. And I feel like people with OCD should get a lot more credit for living their life like six, like just like in the moment. Cause I feel like we, there's so many thoughts that we have to like kind of talk ourselves out of in order to be present. So I think we deserve a lot more credit because it's, it is hard, but I feel like I have like developed like different skills and different coping strategies to deal with all the thoughts. And I feel like I've done a really good job recently, like managing it all and having it not control my life. But I feel like I still every now and then will have intrusive thoughts and I just have to ignore them and I talk myself out of it. But do you think that like OCD is something that's like curable or is it something that you might have to just like manage your entire life? So the the concept of cure is, uh, I mean, this is definitely a super sought after kind of discussion in mental health in general and especially within the OCD community. I think the problem is within the word cure, right? Like when I think of the word cure, I almost think of like magic, like that we just have zapped it away, like that you have like taken this thing and it's gone and it's gone forever and boom, with no work that you have cured it. Um, I don't know. That's just how I, uh, how I interpret the word cure. Um, so that, no, that doesn't happen and that's not going to be possible, but we also don't have that for anything really, right? Like even cancer, right? Like that can always come back and um, you know, especially when, when it comes to mental health, we don't say that we cure alcoholism, you know, that we don't cure eating disorders. We don't cure what, like, we can't have that kind of expectation, that unrealistic expectation for OCD recovery either. But I, I do feel like recovery is possible. And, and so, you know, I am a firm believer that we'll never get rid of the O because intrusive thoughts are a human experience. We've done research to show that everybody in the world, 95 to 99% of individuals acknowledge that they have these weird, strange, intrusive thoughts. I think the one to 5% of people who say that they don't are full of crap and they're lying or they just didn't understand the question, right? Um, so it's a human experience. Our brains are very complex and complicated. And so it's very expected that there's going to be a crossing of wires every once in a while and just error messages essentially. Um, and that's what intrusive thoughts are. Now, when it comes to OCD, right, we misinterpret those thoughts as being significant somehow. We do compulsions. Um, so we'll always have the obsessions. That's a human experience. That's not going anywhere. Um, I think we're also all going to have compulsions, right? Like we all very as very functioning high functioning individuals even people who don't have ocd or mental health concerns they avoid things sometimes right like you know something scares them and they avoid right like we all do things every once in a while out of fear and anxiety that we probably shouldn't do but we do anyway because we just want to feel better in the moment so we're also never going to get rid of this the c the compulsions but i do believe we can get rid of the d which is the disordered piece which is again back to the one plus hours a day, the distress and the impairment. So yeah, you absolutely can get to the point where this no longer takes up an hour or more a day. You absolutely can get to the point where it no longer impairs or impacts your life. And you're still able to do all the things that you need to do and want to do and live a great life. And you can absolutely get to the point where it no longer distresses you or the people around you. So I think that you can absolutely get to the point where you no longer meet diagnostic criteria similar for things like eating disorder, right? Like 
someone with an eating disorder, yeah, they might not, they might no longer meet criteria for it, but they also probably shouldn't go on a diet in the future, you know, like probably not, probably need to stay away from that. Um, you know, so it takes maintenance like anything else though. I, so I, I, to answer the question, no, we're never going to cure it, but we don't do that with anything. And so there's work involved, but you get out of it what you put into it for sure. Well, that's what I was going to agree when you said maintenance. I completely agree. It's just choosing every day to use the like resources that you have to continue to be successful and like maybe like saying no to the intrusive thoughts and things like that. For me, I also can relate with the eating disorders thing. I agree that it's like you can be healed, but you may not ever like never get a thought. Like, of course, I get thoughts about things that I used to like trigger me to like stop eating. But now instead of like choosing to not eat, I continue to eat and just function as I normally would. But it's not like those thoughts will never stop popping up. I think that they, just the more I ignore them and kind of choose not to believe them, the more they'll pop up or the less they'll pop up. Mm-hmm. Um but I agree. It's all about maintenance. I don't think it's going to, it's also curable. Totally. Is there anything, cause I noticed like my OCD will get worse when I'm tired or there a big change happens in my life. Like are there different triggers? I'm sure it varies by person to person, but are there like things that might trigger OCD more than like other things? Um, I mean, I definitely think that we all have like a mental energy piggy bank, right? So when we're sick or when we have something stressful going on, in our life or when we're tired, we're not taking care of ourselves physically as much because we can't or, you know, other things require our attention, you're probably not going to be able to give as much of that mental energy to your mental health, right? So it probably just is deprioritized. Um, So that's something that can definitely happen. Um, We know that OCD can definitely spike during times of stress and transition. So that's why we see so much of a big spike when it comes to kids, right? Like we see a big spike whenever kids kind of transition into like high school, but we also see it like beginning of adulthood, um, a big spike at that point too, because there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of transitions taking place at that time. Um, But there's nothing that causes OCD, right? So it's always going to be that loaded trigger situation where there was always that genetic predisposition, like always kind of bubbling under the surface. So nothing really causes it. It's usually a culmination of different things that can kind of pull that trigger. Um, so definitely stress, uh, you know, whether that's just like stress from day to day or whether it's a big or a series of big stressful life events or, you know, kind of a big major transition. I think that's also why so many moms and new parents struggle, right? You know, talk about that's like the biggest transition somebody could make in the world is having a child. And um, yeah, anything like that can definitely contribute. Yeah, that makes sense. And so how can like a partner or like a a family member best support someone going through, like just support someone who has OCD? I think it really helps to become educated about it, right? So this is not something that people want to do. Um, OCD is not just about being clean and orderly and tidy. Uh, you know, it's really important to know the basics just of OCD and anxiety and to, you know, the same way that if a, if a loved one got cancer, right. If our loved one had some type of heart condition, you'd probably be benefit yourself and the relationship, right. To learn a little bit about it. Um, and so I think that can be really important. The second most important thing too, is learning about what's called accommodations. So really important to understand uh, the family members or loved ones role in the OCD. So a lot of times 
as loved ones, right, we want to do things to, to alleviate our loved ones' pain or suffering or anxiety. And so we rush to their safety. So my husband, for a lot of the time, he would, you know, offer to put socks on, on Eli or he would, you know, rush home because he knew that I was anxious being alone with Eli. And at the time, obviously that was great because it was a compulsion and it made me feel better. But what that just did was it reinforced everything. So it acted like its own ritual when he would take over and put on the socks or when he would rush home. Um, it just reinforced everything the same way that a ritual does. So it's really important to understand the ways that family members and loved ones accommodate. Um, because it, again, it works just like a ritual. So um, really important to learn the ways that you can support your loved one without accommodating. So uh, reducing those accommodations as much as possible, saying things like, you know, I know you can put the socks on. I'm here with you. I'm not going to do it with you because I know that you can do it. And I know how important it is for you to get through it. Um, little things like that can be really helpful. Yeah, that's super helpful insight. My mom, like when I first was kind of like struggling with it, she would like just because I would come to her and be like, Mom, is everything going to be okay? Just tell me it's going to be okay. And she'd be like, Yes, Alex, it's going to be okay. And eventually she's just like, I can't keep feeding this. Like, yeah. just go, but like, I don't know, kind of like, I'm not going to answer that question. And we just like move on. Yeah. But um, so I, I completely agree that you can't, can't be accommodating, like, be supportive and like you mentioned, learn more about it and be sympathetic, empathetic towards them, but really not accommodate and encourage the actions. Mm -hmm, for sure. Is there anything like you wish you knew when you first were kind of diagnosed with OCD? Um, I think I wish I knew, and of course I know now, um, just the importance of ritual prevention, right? Like you can do all the exposures that you want, but if you're not actually resisting the ritual, then you're not doing anything to change the pattern. Um, I think a lot of times people, therapists and people who have OCD alike, we like overemphasize the exposures, right? Like, oh my gosh, what exposure should I do? And that's kind of the first thing that we think about when we think about ERP. Um, but really ex the only purpose of an exposure is to put you in a position where you can resist the compulsion. Um, so yeah, just really making sure that we're not, you know, getting overly excited or ambitious about one aspect of it and forgetting to, you know, really hone in our skills on what is actually the most important piece, which is resisting the rituals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super helpful. And also I've always been curious, it doesn't sound like this is the case, but does like OCD and anxiety like go hand in hand or does like OCD trigger anxiety? It sounds like in your case, you had anxiety before OCD, like how does that work or is there no really well, correlation? They are officially, according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, which is kind of our handbook for diagnosing and assessing mental health conditions, um, OCD is separate from generalized anxiety disorder, um, which is kind of what we're actually talking about diagnosis-wise when we say OCD or when we say anxiety rather. Um, so they are technically different, but again, if you look at the fine print, they're exactly the same. So a lot of times generalized anxiety disorder or anxiety is considered to be more like realistic concerns, right? Like fears of, you know, not being able to pay the bills and, you know, what if you get fired and so on and so forth. And I think for the longest time, OCD was thought to be these like really outlandish kind of unrealistic things. Um, but it's not that, and like at the end of the day, who cares, right? Like either way, regardless of whether someone is overly anxious about something in their real life or overly anxious about something that's like not proportionate to the actual, like I don't, I don't really care. I want people to be only as anxious as the facts warrant 
And so my job is to get them to reduce the safety behaviors and the compulsions that they do about that. You know what I'm saying? So again, the process is exactly the same. Um, so I, to me, it's kind of like tomato, tomato, like whatever, it's the same process. So, um, what we, what I experienced is generally the trajectory. So what I experienced is, um, you know, kind of like this bubbling of anxiety, right? And it was very developmentally appropriate. You know, it came out a lot in school when we're often worried about what other people think of us. Um, it came out in college uh, when it came up in the more academic realm because that was the most important thing to me. Boom, had a baby, came out with my, uh, came, uh, you know, it manifested in terms of my relationship with my son and, and, and all of that stuff, most important thing to me. So a lot of times it starts out as anxiety and then eventually it kind of comes into something that's a little bit more obvious and it feels more threatening and it feels more jarring. Um, and that's when OCD kind of gets its diagnosis and its treatment. Um, but yeah, the process is really, truly the same, regardless of what it is that somebody is anxious about. To me, that doesn't matter as much as it does, okay, why did you do that thing? How is that getting in the way of your life? And how can I help you only be as anxious as the facts warrant? Absolutely. That makes sense. That It doesn't really matter. Just the same treatment applies. Mm -hmm. But I also, um, one last question on this topic is that if anyone wants to learn more about OCD or how to best manage it, obviously I want them to check out your podcast. Are there any podcast episodes specifically you recommend and then any other books or other podcasts that you recommend? So I love the OCD stories podcast. The OCD stories podcast is great. It's one of the most popular ones, the most kind of uh, sought after it's been around for so long. So the OCD stories by Stuart Ralph is incredible. Um, I love anything by Dr. Reed Wilson. So Dr. Reed Wilson, R E I D. He doesn't have a podcast, but he's been a guest on some podcasts, and those would be amazing to, to listen to. Also, Dr. Michael Greenberg, again, he doesn't have a podcast, but he's been a guest on some podcasts. Um, that would be really, really great to listen to. The Fearcast podcast is also really good when it comes to OCD and anxiety, so definitely that one. Um, and then my podcast, I always forget about mine. Mine is called All the Hard Things, um, so can definitely look that up too. Okay. Awesome. And then the last two questions I always like to ask my guests is the first being, what is your favorite quote or piece of advice? Um, my favorite quote, the one that just comes to mind is the wound is the place where the light enters you. It's by Rumi, um, a poet. And I love that because I think when we're in our suffering, we are just in our suffering and it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but I think we all have been on the other side of that suffering at some point um, and we can look back and we can see like how it has changed us and how it has bettered us. And so, you know, especially in my own journey, it was very relevant to me having gone through everything that I went through with my own OCD. It was very awful and very debilitating. And again, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but I also feel like I understand OCD so much better. I'm a better parent. I'm a better therapist. Like I'm a better educator, a better a better uh, creator in general. And so, yeah, the wound is the place where the light enters you. I really think that's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. It just, these experiences make you stronger and a better person. Mm -hmm. And then what's something you do every day that brings you joy? So I work out every day. Um, I, that's a lie. I do it six days a week. I try to rest one or two days a week, but I love moving my body. Like there's nothing that's cooler to me 
then identify like, oh my gosh, I didn't think that I could do that. You know, like I get a little bit lower with a push up, or I jump a 30 inch box or, you know, something else really cool in the gym. So I do burn boot camp. I absolutely love it. So I do that six days a week. Um, and again, not really for any other reason than I love doing difficult things. I love trying new things. I love seeing like how I can kind of push myself out of that threshold. Um, and it's really cool to push yourself out of your comfort zone, whether that's with your body, whether that's with anxiety, whether that's with OCD. So that is something every day that brings me joy. Yeah. No, I love that so much. And then if you want to let everyone know where they can find you. Yeah, absolutely. So I already mentioned my podcast that's called All the Hard Things, but I also offer tons of masterclasses on my website. So if you just go to www.jennaoverbaughlpc.com, um, there I have masterclasses that you can download instantly. They're incredible. Um, I have one about OCD and anxiety and the cycle. I have one about ERP basics that we can talk about. I have tons more for moms too. Um, lots of really good stuff there. I also have a, a blog. So lots of searchable stuff too. I have a search function where if there's something that you, between my podcast and my blog, you're just want to like type something in really quickly, you can do that and it'll give you a ton of recommendations. Um, I have a free newsletter. I actually have a free 40-minute video um, on my website about the five must-know strategies for handling OCD and anxiety. So definitely check that out. Free 40-minute video available on my website. Um, and I'm over on Instagram. I'm over at uh, jenna.overbaugh on there if you have any questions or just want to say hi. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. 